Good job. What's up? Y'all doing good? All right. You glad to be here this morning? Do you feel a little off? Because you got an extra hour. Did you get an extra hour of sleep? I'm such an overachiever. I always burn the extra hour up before it gets here. Y'all do that? Thinking at like five o'clock yesterday, I got an extra hour. So yeah, but it feels a little off just being an hour ahead of schedule. How weird is that? But I'm glad to see you. Glad you're here. Go to 1 Corinthians. I've been threatening to start a series in 1 Corinthians. Threat time is over. We're going to do it. We're going to jump right in. And I was hesitant to start a new series toward the end of the year. But man, new building, new move, just this merge and all this stuff. I think it's a good time to jump into a book like 1 Corinthians. And of course, we're just going through the New Testament. We started in Matthew a few years back and went through the Gospels. And, uh, and then we wound up going through the book of Acts and uh, the book of Romans we just completed. So we're going to start now in 1 Corinthians. I feel like it's a very appropriate place for us to go. And because what we're going to see throughout the study of the book of 1 Corinthians is the Corinthian church by no means had everything figured out. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, they were quite messed up. It's probably the most screwed up church in the Bible just being honest with you. And it's the most exhaustive letter that Paul wrote. Of all the letters written to different churches, there are two letters to the Corinthians. Now, you know you're in trouble if the preacher has to write to you twice. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, but, but lengthy letters, really. First and Second Corinthians both are, are very, uh, as far as uh, the amount of words used, the volumes, uh, they're very lengthy epistles, long letters that Paul wrote to the church. But uh, man, I'm glad that God uses screwed up people. <laughs> Aren't you? <laughs> Uh, you better. I mean, if you don't say amen anywhere else, that's a good spot to go. Yeah, you know what? I'm glad God uses screwed up people because he's using one here today, just so you know. But uh, it's, it's all good. So I'm looking forward to this study. And uh, I got to go out hunting a little bit this week and enjoy just getting out in the woods. No, I didn't kill anything. And it's not because I couldn't. All right, that was flexing a little bit. But <laughs> I have reached the age. I'm not old, but I've reached the age where I don't mind watching deer walk by me. Y'all know what I'm saying? All you older guys, especially you bow hunters, I just got to the, I don't care. Uh, so I got to watch a lot of deer and enjoyed my time out. But um, the first day hunting, I was out Monday morning hunting and I had packed some snacks with me because that's the most enjoyable part of deer hunting is snacking. And so uh, about eight o'clock in the morning, it was really cold that morning. And uh, I pulled out a protein bar that I'd carried out to the woods. Didn't pay attention to the fact that it was frozen and um, bit into it and broke my cap on my very front tooth. I got my teeth knocked out in sixth grade. He looked worse than I did after the fight, but um, no, it actually wasn't a fight. I, we were horsing around in, in class, and you know, I, can, I know you can't believe that, but sixth grade, Mrs. Jones' classroom playing a game. Me and my buddy Jared were wrestling and uh, fell into a desk face first, knocked my teeth out. But 11 years ago, I got them repaired. I, got, I, I mean, I didn't walk around snaggletooth for all those years. I had caps, but I got, I got porcelain veneers put on um, which is why I have such a pretty smile now. But uh, yeah, I broke one of them. Broke one first thing Monday morning. And you don't know, uh, you know, you don't really appreciate the little things in life until they're gone. <laughs> I mean, the whole rest of the week, I was afraid I was going to sneeze and blow my tooth out. Every time I laughed, I had to hold on to my tooth. And uh, I was brushing my teeth um, one morning, and uh, we stayed at a campground that had, had electricity but no water. So we had to use the shower house, you know, to shower and, and get ready. And I was in the shower house brushing my teeth. And lo and behold, 
my tooth fell out <laughs> while I was brushing my teeth in the public shower house. Are y'all following me? <laughs> and uh, the bathroom floor was the little, uh, the small tiles, and they had white specks throughout the tiles. And I was standing over a drain that was about that big. So as soon as it happened, I started to freak out, literally, because I'm thinking these boogers were $1,000 a piece. And so I'm scrambling, looking for this porcelain crown on a floor that's white speckled, and there's a drain. Literally, I was standing right to, to, next to this drain, and so I'm so frantically looking for my tooth, going, no, 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 God, God, where'd my tooth go? Where'd my tooth? And so I, when I found it, I didn't even think twice to stick it right back in my mouth. <laughs> and uh, that, kids, is how you boost your immune system. It's a lesson there, but anyway, got home Thursday afternoon, went to my dentist and got it permanently sealed. So hopefully I don't spit my tooth out on anybody today. But look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 1. As, as it was the, his, his style of writing, every letter that Paul wrote begins with his name. So it's very easy to identify the writings of Paul. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 1 says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, to Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So essentially, Paul is writing to the, the local church in Corinth. And in those days, by the way, if you wrote a letter to a church in a region, you were just writing the letter to a church. You didn't have to specify that it was the First Baptist Church or the Second Baptist Church or the First Pentecostal Church or the Methodist or the Episcopalian or the Lutheran. You just were writing to the church. Churches hadn't yet divided. Now, don't get too excited. The church hadn't been in existence for too long. It didn't take very long for churches to begin to divide. But at this particular time, it, it was sort of the way God designed it, and that was that the people of God in that particular region all met together in one place. What a novel idea, right? So he's writing to the church of God, which is in Corinth, and then he, he goes on to express that, that, that we're sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're not sanctified or set apart because of who we are. Uh, we're set apart because of who Jesus is. And he said to all those who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So in other words, he says, we're all on the same team. Whether you live here or don't live here, if we're in Christ, we're all of one family. And then in verse number four, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we will stand blameless in the presence of Christ because we are in Christ, not because we're good. He's able to confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you. Paul's kind of savage, isn't he? He's like, look, man, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of y'all, except for, you know, the house of Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone, it's Gaius, it's pronounced Gaius, I'm such a juvenile. Verse 15, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. This is an interesting statement in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so we're going to pause there in our reading. I'm going to try to cover the entirety of chapter 1. You hear the same mantra all the time when I'm in a series, don't you? I'm going to try. I'm going to try to get through chapter 1. This is going to be a bit more of an introduction to the church in Corinth than it is to the book specifically, um, although obviously they are intertwined uh, and inseparable. But I, I thought about getting into the historical aspect and the cultural setting uh, of the days in which Paul was writing. But instead of that, we're going to pick those little bits up as we go throughout the book. So this series is entitled Church is Messy. Church is messy. Father in heaven, we bow our hearts in your presence today. We are thankful for the opportunity to be here in your presence together. Lord, we could be a lot of different places this morning, but we are right here, right now, for the express purpose of hearing your voice speak to us. Lord, your word spoken can change lives, and so we pray that you would change lives today. I pray that you'd speak into everyone's heart, that you would revive us, that you would strengthen us, that you would recalibrate our direction, God, that you would help us to keep our hearts and our minds fixed upon you. I pray that you'd work in every heart. Each person walked in this room with an individual need, and I pray that you'd supply that need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We pray, amen and amen. So two Sundays ago, uh, we, we sort of pondered the question of what would church look like if everyone in the church had a heart to be like Jesus? Y'all remember that? So we sort of thought on this idea and, and, and contemplated the idea of, of really how different would, would church be? And I mean churches in general, but, but when you walk into a local church, an assembly of God's people, what would church look like? How would we treat each other? How would we behave? How would we sing? How would we pray? How would we preach? How would we operate functionally if everybody, and I know this is idealistic, but, but just, just, just sort of go with me on this, this social fantasy for a moment. What would it look like if we all endeavored and, and were striving to be like the Lord Jesus Christ? How insane is that? It'd be different, wouldn't it? We would treat people differently. We'd have a completely different attitude. The complexion of our heart would be different. We would be serving one another. Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords and yet made himself no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant. And so we would be uh, in this state of, uh, of servitude and grace and humbleness and peacefulness. I think things would look a whole lot different if we all were striving to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, I will tell you right out of the gate that the church in Corinth was the exact opposite of that. They really were. And so, so and I think this study is going to help us really understand because, you know, I don't like to be negative, but, but here we go, right? Several years ago, it, it became evident to me that my idea of church was very different from the churches in the New Testament. My perception of how church should be. And I think we all have this mental construct 
of what church should look like. We walk in with certain expectations. We, we walk in with certain ideas of, of what the perfect church is like. And, and I can tell you, uh, at that point, I'd been in ministry for about 13 years, and I, I started to contemplate very seriously what I view, how I viewed the church and what I thought the church should look like. So here's just one little example. I could give you a lot of examples, but one little example that stood out in my mind as I was thinking back on those days is, is uh, we had a sign outside the auditorium of the church I pastored at the time that said in bold letters, no food or drinks, right? Now that in and of itself, you were there. So that in and of itself, heard Dennis say, yep, uh, was not wrong right? That's everybody's decision. If you want people to be able to eat or drink in the auditorium, that's a personal choice for every church to make. So it's not that it's inherently wrong. It's just, it was, it was more the idea that the church building is some sort of sacred or holy place. Now, in retrospect, that seems a little messed up to me. When I think back on, on the way that I viewed church in those days, and again, I'm the one that put the sign there. I designed it, had it printed, and put it outside the, the church auditorium because I had this idea that church was supposed to be sort of this sterile environment where, where it, was, it, was, it was not that I didn't want coffee spilled on the carpet. It was that I, I felt like church was supposed to really be sort of this sacred holy place. And, and we refer to the church auditorium oftentimes as the sanctuary, Right? the sanctuary, the holy place. And so it, it really, in our minds, sometimes I, I feel like we think that way. I, I invited a lady to church several years ago. We were just getting started uh, here in Sullivan, and I was, I was talking to a lady, and, 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 and I was sharing with her about the church. And, and throughout the conversation, I gathered that, that she had previously been in somewhat of a, of a legalistic church, uh, which was my background. And so I began to say things to her uh, to try to express the, the environment, the culture of our church. And, and, and I made a statement like this. I said, you know, here's a, here's a great example. I said, at our church, you would not feel at all out of place wearing pants to church. To which she immediately, with a very pious and sanctimonious attitude, said, oh, I would never wear pants to church. Now, now, here's the point, and you might be here because I don't remember who it was. But here's the point of that. She wasn't in church. I don't feel like you're getting it. She wasn't going to church at all. Her life was kind of messed up, and she was sharing with me how messed up her life was at the time. But then had this idea, this perception that if she were to go to church, she could no, in no way walk into a church wearing a pair of slacks as a woman. That's kind of jacked up. But really, that's how we've, we've designed it that way. I say we loosely, but, but we've all been a part of this, this sort of this ideology that church is almost like this, this sacred, holy temple that, that as you walk in, suddenly things change. Your attitude has to change. Your mindset has to change. Your clothing has to change. And whatever you do Monday through Saturday, you don't do in church on Sunday. See, but it began to become abundantly clear to me that, that God's just as interested in who I am on Monday as he is the person I pretend to be on Sunday. So, so think about this. We treat church in this, I guess the best way to put it is we compartmentalize our lives. 
We compartmentalize our church life versus our life at home. We compartmentalize our church life versus our, our daily life uh, in the workplace. We, 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 we fragment our relationship with God to a point that it really just becomes superficial and, and, and at worst, it's hypocritical. Would you agree with that? I'm telling you, this isn't deep yet this morning, guys. I'm just saying, I think we have a very false idea of what the church is supposed to be. Now, now think about it. Here's one of my, it's, it's odd that this is one of my favorite verses in relation to the New Testament church because it's an Old Testament passage, but I feel like it's so appropriate. Proverbs chapter 14, verse number four says, where no oxen are, the trough or the crib is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. Now, he's not talking about literal oxen. He's talking about you. You're welcome. Pastors are called ox, oxen in the book of 1 Corinthians 2, so don't be offended. But the point is, he says, essentially, you can either have people or you can have a clean house, but you can't have both. <laughs> right? This would apply to, to, to parenthood as well, right? If you have kids at home, your house probably isn't clean unless mama is a clean freak. Because we know dad ain't. <laughs> right? Where no oxen are, the crib or the house or the stall is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. You can't have people in a clean house. If you have people, stuff stuff's going to get messy. If there are people there, there will be problems there. And so, so, so life is messy. People are messy. We have problems. We have scars. We have burdens. We have issues. And so if the church is to effectively minister to people, we have to realize that this is never going to be a sterile environment. You didn't walk into a temple this morning. Matter of fact, you just walked into a building. Literally. He said, oh, no, it's a holy place. Not this place. It's not. There's nothing holy or sacred about the building. It's made out of brick and mortar. It's built on a foundation just like your house is. It's just a building. Amen? And so I, I just want to go on record saying I have zero interest in pristine buildings adorned with statues and monuments that have become echo chambers for religious dogma. That's not what church is. Church is not a sterile environment. The church isn't to be a mausoleum filled with bones from the past. It's a fleshly organism that is alive with the power of the Spirit of God and gives life to all those who believe. You have to understand that the church is a messy place because we are messy people. And God is able to bear all of our problems, and we don't have to come in with some superficial, pretentious facade on to impress other people. I'm not here to impress you, which is probably good because you don't look impressed. (laughs) But I hope you didn't walk in here this morning feeling like you had to meet some certain criteria in order to be welcome here. You're welcome here no matter where you were last night or what you've done. Church is a messy place. It is not, and it is not to be a sterile environment. So here's what I want to say. You're going to see as we journey together through the book of 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth was anything but but pristine. It was a messy church filled with messy people. And so, so what we're going to do this morning I mean, you know, sometimes the best way to establish a thesis is to thoroughly examine the antithesis, 
So we're going to look at the church in Corinth, which is why I think God gave us so many details about the church. The church in Corinth, in many ways, is the antithesis of what the church should be. You're going to see some problems in the church that shouldn't be there. But if you've ever been in church for any length of time in your life, you will fully identify with everything we're looking at. Right? Y'all good? Is it hot in here? I'm starting to get hot. Turn the freaking air on. Somebody, please. I'm dying. So here we go. Let me give you just a few simple thoughts this morning. Sorry to say freaking in the holy temple, but um, ain't that the truth? We treat church as if it's, so, listen, if, if, if it's wrong in church, hear me out, it's wrong outside of church. I'm not being naive. I know certain things are inappropriate for certain settings, okay? But at the same time, if it's wrong, it's wrong. Whether you're in this building or another building, whether you're at home or here or there, no matter where you are, wrong is wrong and right is right. And so there's nothing sacred about the building. By the way, this isn't the temple. The temple was done away with. When Jesus died on the cross, he made it very clear that temple worship had been abolished when he tore the veil in two from top to bottom, stating to the world that everybody, Jew, Greek, Gentile, Everybody can come to know him as Savior. There, there are no favorites in the kingdom. And so we, we have to realize this and get beyond this in order for us to be the right kind of church. Because I hope in some way we can make effectual change in our, in our community. That's what we're here for. Amen? So let me give you, let me give you just a quick three-dimensional diagnosis of the church in Corinth. Okay, this is going to be a bit of a flyover examination of the church in Corinth, but I want to give you just a few broad compartments where they were in error. Number one, I want you to see in the church in Corinth, there were divisions in the church. Now, probably no one here can identify with this, but hear me out. Some people who go to church, I hesitate to say this, I know it's going to be shocking, But some people who go to church are are divisive. I know. Yeah. That's going to take a second to digest. But some people who go to church are divisive. Now look what was happening in the church in Corinth. Paul says in verse number 10, I plead with you. Paul's making this, this passionate appeal. He says, I plead with you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, someone like the Apostle Paul would never take the name of the Lord in vain. And so Paul wasn't loosely using Christ's name. He said, I'm telling you, I'm pleading with you by the Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brothers, that or by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, I don't know who Chloe was or who her family was, but apparently that's where you got your information because Chloe had been talking. Chloe had been talking to the preacher, the Apostle Paul. By the way, it's amazing what gets back to leadership that you thought never would. (laughs) Yeah. Those little birdies like to talk. And so Paul said, Paul said, hey, Chloe's household has been spilling the beans on you guys that even though I'm not there, and Paul was instrumental in the the church's founding in Corinth, uh, but Paul said, even though I'm not there, I've heard 
that there are contentions among you and that there are divisions in the church that you guys are bickering and fussing and fighting with one another. And we're going to see later on in Corinth that these people were fighting and there was so much contention that they were threatening to sue one another. Again, this is psychotic that we would never think of this kind of stuff in our modern day. (laughs) Threatening lawsuits toward other believers in the church. And so Paul said, look, man, I've been hearing this report and I don't know who Chloe was talking to, but she must have been a reliable source because Paul said, listen, Chloe's been talking. Her household has been telling me that there are contentions among you. Now watch this, verse 12. And he, get, he gives just a little example of it. He says, now, now, now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. Cephas is another name for Simon Peter. Or I am of Christ. Now those, that last ca- category of people, they were the real spiritual ones who said, we don't follow any man but Jesus. Amen? That sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? I only follow Jesus. Well, okay. Apparently, Paul said, again, later now, Paul's going to say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. There's nothing wrong with following good spiritual leadership. In fact, it's biblical. God has created this construct of spiritual leadership within the local New Testament church. But Paul said the problem is that you have all these, these little factions within the church, that that one group identifies with the Apostle Paul, the other group wanted to identify with Apollos. Apollos was another very highly educated leader. He was a church planner. He was, in fact, worked in concert with Paul in many different regions. Apollos was was an impactful, very dynamic speaker. And so people, some people say, well, I'm of the Apostle Paul. I'm of Apollos. Uh, Well, we follow Simon Peter. We're more of the first Baptist church of Peter, St. Peter. Or we're the, we're the church of Christ. We only identify with Jesus. And then Paul says in verse 13, he says, well, is Christ divided? Was, was, uh, was Paul crucified for you? Did Paul die on the cross for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul said, I thank God. I'm telling you, he, he gets a little, little harsh here, but he says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. That's a bit confusing. Because I, he said, I didn't baptize anybody in, in that church except for Crispus and Gaius. And he said, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. But besides that, I didn't baptize any of y'all. And he said this, and again, I don't have time to deal with this. We'll deal with the, this subject a little bit later. But Paul said, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So, so you're identifying with who baptized you. You're identifying with whichever personality you sort of mesh with a little bit better. But you have to understand something, that in Christ there are no divisions. Was, was Paul crucified? Did, did the apostle Paul shed his blood for you? Are you atoned by the grace of Paul? Or Apollos? Or Barnabas? Or Simon Peter? He said you have to stop all this factitious nonsense within the local church. Now hear me out. In verse number 10, he said, I plead with you by the name of the Lord Jesus that you all speak the same thing. It would be naive to think that everyone in the church should have the same beliefs on every single subject under the sun. Wouldn't it? So that can't possibly be what he means, right? It would be naive to think that we all just have, that's that's actually called a cult. That's not what a church is. A cult is where everybody feels they have to dress the same and look the same and talk the same and and can't have any differing beliefs. That's not the church. Amen. The church is a mosaic. We come from different backgrounds, different different positions in society, different different brackets uh, that we fit into financially or socially. 
but at the same time, we, we are bonded together in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so it would be naive to think that the church should have to have the same beliefs on every single thing under the sun. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's important for your own internal peace that you become okay with people who do not agree with you 100% of the time. That would be very helpful. Just for That's just personal advice that you become okay with people not agreeing with you about everything. See, look at you. You can't handle that. We have to get to the point that it's all right to have differing views with people and still work with them and be in concert with them and love them and know that we're on the same team. So so hear me out. Paul begins in verse number 3 of chapter 1 by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he begin the epistle? Before he ever dealt with any problems, before he diagnosed anything, he immediately out of the gate says grace to you and peace. Why? I'll tell you why. Because graceful living is peaceful living. When you learn to give people grace, and we've studied grace for the past couple weeks, when you learn to give people grace, meaning unmerited favor, you just, you, just, you just give them the benefit of the doubt. You just love unconditionally. You're just kind whether they are kind or not. I think I'm going I'm to try something new. I'm just start staring <laughs> until you agree. That's a great statement, though. You have to learn to be nice to people even when they're not nice. So graceful living... Being a grace-filled person is to be a peaceful person. You should have to be backed into a corner to fight someone. And I don't mean physically fight, although that's more fun than arguing, isn't it? Can we all agree on that? But you should have to, I'm talking about when, when the Bible says as much as lies within you live peaceably with all men, that means that you, get, you, have to, you would have to be forced into an argument with somebody. That's okay. It's difficult to do that. But we have to learn in order to live in unity with each other as a church community, as a body in Christ, we have to know what it is to give people grace. Don't always expect the worst. Don't always think the worst. Don't always believe the worst about people. You have to be a graceful, we have to be a graceful body of people in order to live in peace with one another. Peaceful living is grace-filled living. Give people grace. Now, I've driven that point home over the past couple of weeks, so I hope you have that one already. But then in verse number four, notice what Paul says. He said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, now the remedy, and again, we're going to deal with a lot of this in more detail, but the remedy for division in a church is for everyone in the church to accept and recognize that grace is our common denominator. 
Grace is our common denominator. What do we need? When Paul said in verse number 10 that we all speak the same thing, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that we have to all recognize that if it were not for the grace of God, we would all be a wreck. Now, I say this often, and unfortunately it offends some people. But, but it's, a, it's a statement that we all have to understand and adapt to. And that statement is simply this. Your sin is no better than anyone else's sin. See, the fact that only about five of y'all agreed with that is a little scary to me. I had somebody recently say that, that they talked to someone who quit coming to the church because they got tired of hearing me say that. So here's the way I'm going to fix that. I'm going to say it again. Your sin is no better than anyone else's sin. And their sin is no worse than you. There you go. Now, if you don't like that, there are places you can go that wouldn't tell you that. But I'm here to tell you that your sin's no better than mine, and I'm no better than you, and you're no better than anybody else. Grace is what binds us together. We don't have a hierarchy of righteousness in the room. There's no hierarchy of holiness in the room. If there's a holy man of God in the room, if there's a holy woman of God in the room, we are holy because of Jesus Christ, not because of our ability to restrain our physical nature, but because we recognize that Jesus is our only hope and we've received him as our only hope as Lord and Savior and we are made right in the sight of God because of Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing. That means our lives are defined by the grace of Christ. And so, and so, as I said a couple weeks ago, if, if you see a sin in someone's life that is absolutely mortifying and disgusting to you, as I do, I see things in people that I loathe. I despise it. There are certain conversations that you could bring up with me about what certain people do to other certain people that would put me in absolute warrior mode. I can get psychotic. There are a few conversations that we can have that you will see there's a shift in my mindset. And I'm not trying to sound tough. I'm not tough, but there is the grace of God in the Louisville slugger. <laughs> and so you can bring up certain things that people do, especially to other people, especially to innocent people, especially to people who can't defend themselves, that will send me into an almost sadistic state of mind where I want to do physical bodily harm to those people. Are y'all okay? Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't pastoral. That was just me being real. So I see things in people that I despise. I'll even go so far as to say I say, see things in people that I hate. But here's what we all have to recognize. It's only by the grace of God that I am not that person. And it's only by the grace of God that you're not that person. God is the one that has kept us. And listen, if we believe the words of the songs that we sing, we just sang Amazing Grace. Yeah. <laughs> you know? If we, if we really believe the words to the songs that we sing, that Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You, you, you want to know why people act the way they do? They're blind. There, in many cases, what the Bible, the Bible in Romans chapter 1, we examine this in our study of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, the Bible uses the word reprobate. A reprobate mind is a mind that can no longer decipher the difference between good and evil. 
they've crossed so many lines and in some cases have had lines crossed with them that they no longer can see the difference. They have gotten to a point where their mind is so severed, their conscience rather, is so severed that they can't even tell the difference between right and wrong. Let me explain to you, it's the grace of God that's kept you from being that person. And so we have to understand that God's grace is our theme. It's who we are. It's what binds us together. It's the one denominator that we all have in common that keeps us in this spirit of unity where I can show you grace and you can show me grace and we can show each other kindness and we can give the benefit of the doubt because we recognize the fact that even if I see things in someone sitting across from me in the church that I disagree with, I can disagree and yet still Love them and be nice to them. Isn't that wonderful? For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, if, if, if God the Father didn't send God the Son into the world to condemn the world, I highly doubt God the Father sent you into the world to condemn the world. It's not your job. Dude, it's not your job. It's not your job to judge other people. I get to judge myself. I get to judge what I allow into my circle. Amen? Boundaries are a good thing. I get to judge what I allow into my household and into the lives of my children. We get to make those judgment calls. But you don't get to judge what everybody else does. Now we will talk in the book of 1 Corinthians about right, the right type of Judgment, and there are times that we have to make certain judgment calls. There's a, there's a difference, a very distinct difference between making a judgment call and having a judgmental attitude, and we'll talk more about that later. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Grace. Grace. Grace is our common denominator. Verse number 10, notice this. We're going to read it again. Paul said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things. Uh, that the same thing, rather, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Once again, I'm just going to simply state this because I'll unpack and elaborate much more on this later, but grace is our unified message. It's the message that we preach. Grace is not only the message we preach, it's who we are, it's how we function, it's our operating system, if you will. I hope you're getting this, because we spent several weeks dealing with it. Let me give you another, just another diagnosis of the church in Corinth. Are you guys okay this morning? Yeah. Number two, second, second little just observation about the church in Corinth. Uh, not only were there divisions in the church, but number two, they had a, a very distinct lack of discernment. Now, in verse number 18, Paul says, The message or the preaching of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, there's a lot there. 
But, but, but let me just explain in sort of a synoptic Cliff Notes way that, that what Paul essentially was, was diagnosing and identifying in the church early on in chapter 1 was, was that they had, they, they had very little discernment as a group of people. Now, now, another word for discernment is the word perception. Perception or discern means to be able to see beyond the surface and understand a concept. Sometimes people can't see, I'm going to use a very cliche statement, but we can't see the forest for the trees. We, 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 we pick apart little details or we grab a hold of certain words or one little statement and, and we, we fixate on that when the reality is by doing that oftentimes we are completely missing the entirety of the message itself. And so discernment is being able to not just hear one little aspect, but to hear the whole message and decipher the message and look beyond the surface and hear what's actually being said conceptually. Discernment is defined as the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. So I have found a a lot of people have a hard time discerning things. Discernment is vital, by the way. Amen? Discernment's a vital quality that we all, we all must possess in order to live quality lives as Christians. But, but let me just share a few things. This is just sort of observational, all right? Can you handle that? A few observational things I've noticed in churches over the years that, that people just struggle with discerning the difference between. First of all, and again, I think this is epidemic or I wouldn't even mention it, but I think people have a hard time discerning the difference between sentimentality and spirituality. The difference between sentimentality and spirituality. There, there is nothing wrong, and again, hear me out, there's nothing wrong with being emotional. In fact, I kind of wish some of you were more emotional. There's nothing wrong with being emotional. There is nothing wrong with, with, with having emotional attachments, right? I get attached to certain things. I get attached to people. I, 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 we all are a little bit sentimental about, about certain things in life, right? But you have to be able to decipher that just because something moves you emotionally does not mean that your sentiment is the same as the Spirit of God moving. You have to be able to discern the difference between emotionalism and the Holy Spirit. But churches and people have gotten themselves so emotionally attached to certain things, certain music genres, certain worship styles, certain church decor, and a myriad of other things that have nothing to do with what the church is really supposed to be about whatsoever. And yet we equal, we put to equal level of value the way we feel about certain things versus how we should feel about the Holy Spirit moving. And we confuse, we confuse sentimentality, sentimentality with spirituality. We feel like if, if something is, 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 is moving to us emotionally, it must therefore be spiritual. And that's absolutely not true. We have to understand the difference between sentimentality and spirituality. Amen? Now I'm telling you straight up, this is why some churches never change. This is why some people don't like change. We get attached to things. We, we, we get all nostalgic. 
Amen? I could walk you into certain churches right now, today. You pull up their website and see what time they start. At 11 o'clock. I'm just kidding, I didn't look. But I could walk you into certain churches. I, I could be a little more accurate if I saw the name on the sign. And, and show you where somebody or some group of people at some point became attached to uh, really a certain generation of worship styles. They did. I've seen churches that literally, literally, if you walk in, you would think that you, that you got, in a, like got, got in with Bill and Ted and worked back to the 1960s. <laughs> Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Come on, guys. Well, the greatest movies of the 1990s. It's not, but anyway. But you walk in and, and, and everything, it literally looks like you, you, you stepped into a time capsule. You listen to the music, it's, you feel like you went, and, and, and to me, I'm just being straight up with you, I know you wouldn't think this looking at me, but, but honestly, my comfort zone of, of church, I'm talking about church culture, my comfort zone of church culture is a small church, hear me out, I can't tell you how many times over the last several months I have prayed that God would let me pastor a little country church again. Because I am, I am 100% more comfortable in a church of about 100 people 50 to 100 people, uh, a piano, maybe a bass guitar, and an old hymn book. I love old hymns. I like four-part harmony. I like choir music. Now, I also like heavy metal and 70s, 80s, and 90s rock. Some early 2000s, really been nothing good since then. The other night when we were having the, the Harvest Festival up here, Ethan turned on some Christian rap music. I walked over to him. I said, dude, you want to tick people off around here real quick? Turn on rap music. Please turn that off. And so the next thing I know, he turned on a different playlist, and it was like early to mid-90s country. I go, bro, do you listen to country music? Nobody likes that crap. Shania Twain and anyway... Golly, if you like Shania Twain, you cannot go to church here anymore. That's where I draw the line. That's it. That's it. That's where grace stops with me. But the point is, what was the point? Did we have a point to that? I'm just saying we, we get so sentimental. We get so attached to certain things. And then in order to validate our feelings, we call that spiritual. I like the old time religion and people will shout their heads off. Well, that's cool, dude. But how old time do you want to be? Well, I don't like all the colored lights and I don't like all the loud music and I don't like, I think you ought to have a wooden pulpit and a man ought to wear a tie but when he gets up to preach. Well, cool. I don't. So it looks like we're at an impasse because you have less Bible than I have to verify my beliefs. Y'all hear me? Yeah. Old time religion. Well, I like old time religion. I like old time religion. But old time religion is not spiritual. It's sentimental. It, it reminds me of my dad, if I'm being honest with you. Those old gospel songs remind, my, remind me of my daddy. My dad sang gospel music all my life. I got drugged up every church in the county when I was a kid because my dad sang gospel music. 
I love gospel music, old southern gospel music. I love it. But that doesn't, that is not the same. My affection for it is not the same as the Spirit of God leading us that direction. You can't confuse and blur the lines between sentimentality and spirituality. Hear me very well when I say this. People in churches have, have dwarfed themselves and they have locked themselves into a certain place in time and, and, and they will never change because they have determined that that's the way it's supposed to be done. I want to make a statement. Hear me well. You can put this on the screen and I'll sign it. Not only do churches change Churches should change with the times. They should. Because this isn't about my comfort zone. This isn't about what I like. It's not about whether you like blue carpet or red carpet or tile on the floor. If you like piano only or acapella only or if you like everything played on 99.1, none of that matters. Churches not only change, but they should change. We ought to be changing. The church is a living organism. People and churches ought to be growing and adapting, not the doctrine that we believe, not the message that we preach, but the way we do things has to change with the times. I've seen, I've seen a meme on Facebook, which I should stay off of Facebook because I usually get on and get mad. But I've seen a meme several times on Facebook, and it's this old sort of like open, open air, what we might call a, like an old-fashioned, y'all remember what a, a brush harbor meeting was like? Let's see if we got people old enough to remember what a brush harbor meeting was. Just out in the middle of a field, right? And sometimes you'd, you'd be a real fancy church and have an open air tabernacle, right? They'd actually build sort of a pole barn without walls. And there's this, this meme that goes around, floats around on Facebook, and says, when, church, or, uh, when God mattered more than buildings. It's like, well, that sounds awesome. But unless you're sleeping under the open sky, don't talk to me about that. Don't act like you're more spiritual because, well, I would go to church there. Well, cool. I'm glad you would. I doubt it, but cool. I'm glad you said that. Right? Man, y'all, look, I, know, I watched you when I said earlier, is it hot in here? Huh? It does it. Thanks, Alfred. We turned the air down a little bit, and it's better now, in my opinion. But the point is, the point is, we're living in modern times, right? There's nothing wrong with the lights. There's nothing wrong with music being a little more appropriate to the times that we're living in. Things like that will change 50 years from now. It should be different here. Hopefully you have a new pastor by then. 50 years from now, they'll probably need to be a name change. 50 years from now, there might be just a complete change of, of all kinds of stuff, as long as the gospel remains the same. Got to understand that. Got to discern the difference between sentimentality. Number two. <laughs> Shoot. I knew this was going to happen. Number two. Is it number three? No, this is the second sub-point. That's what I meant. So it's, it's main point number two, sub-point number two. So we're clear. 
the church in Corinth could not discern the difference between sensationalism and spirituality. Now, I'm not going to spend much time here because we're going to see this spelled out in more detail when we get to chapter 14 specifically. But, but hear me out. We've got to stop looking for God to reveal himself in the same mystical, supernatural ways all the time. Now, notice in verse 22, it's just a, just a, just a shallow indictment. Again, he's going to dive much deeper later on in the book, but he simply says in verse 22, the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. That was, a, that was just, a, that was just a, a synoptic diagnosis. He said that the, the Jews require a sign. They're always looking for some mystical, supernatural revelation, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But essentially, the problem was, and the problem still is, that, that people equate sensationalism with spirituality. Now, the, the best example of this in the Bible is the prophet Elijah. Remember when Elijah got really discouraged and God had worked unusual miracles through his life and God had manifested things through Elijah that was just, just unique and supernatural and powerful? He'd seen incredible movements of God's spirit in his life, but there came a time in Elijah's life when those manifestations left him with unrealistic expectations of his relationship with God. And we see that in, in 1 Corinthians, or rather 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter number 19, where the prophet Elijah was discouraged and defeated, and he was hiding out in a cave, and he was throwing a little pity party that we all are pretty good at doing. Elijah was feeling sorry for himself because God wasn't revealing himself in all the magnanimous ways that he had experienced in the past. And here's what happened. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, he said, go out, God said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And guess where God was? In that still, small voice. Now, verse number 18, look what Paul said. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's amazing to me what a word from God spoken at just the right time can do for a broken heart. If we're always looking for God in the miraculous, in these supernatural manifestations, I'm not saying God never moves and works miracles. I don't believe that miracles have ceased. I think God still performs miracles in people's lives all the time. But know this, it's called supernatural because it is not natural. And it's not the norm. Most of the time, we're going to go through the storm. Most of the time, we're going to have to go through the trial. Most of the time, we are going to have to learn what, that God's grace is sufficient even when we're sick, even when we're defeated, even when we're discouraged, even when things are not going well. We have to stop setting an expectation for God to manifest himself in supernatural ways when the reality is most of the time God's just going to give you a word that will still the spirit and give you a calmness in the midst of your problems. A word 
Fitly spoken, the Bible says, is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. That's a big way of saying God is able to frame just a simple statement that you need to hear at just the right time in your life. And it's that word from God that's going to give you the strength to walk on another mile. Here's how powerful a spoken word is. Paul said it was the spoken word of God that transformed your life to begin with. The greatest miracle that's ever happened in you is when you put your faith and trust in the gospel of the Son of God, when you recognized and realized that Jesus was not just a part of your story, that he is everything, that he died on the cross to take your place, that in his death he took your sin, that in his burial he buried your past, that in his resurrection he came to bring new life to all those who had put their faith in him. And in the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the miracle of all miracles was not that Jesus fed 5,000 with the little boy's lunch. It was not that he walked on the water. It was not that he calmed the storm. It was not that he healed blind Bartimaeus. The greatest miracle that's ever happened is that Jesus brought me from death to life, that God breathed into you and resurrected you. And where there was spiritual death, he gave you resurrection power. And we're always, we seem to tend toward looking for God to manifest himself in some supernatural, some sensational way when the reality is We don't need to see some other sign from God for him to prove himself. We need to hear his voice spoken in our hearts. If you're here today and you've never responded to the message of the gospel, Jesus loves you more than I can put into words. And if you will simply call on him in faith, I promise you, you may not understand it all, but God will do a work in your heart in your life. And if you have questions today, we're going to have staff standing up here at the front in just a moment while the band plays and we sing another worship song. There'll be staff members, pastors that can answer any questions that you might have. If you need prayer, we'd invite you to come forward for that. Let's stand together. Father, in Jesus' name, please bless this time now. I pray that your word would take root in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Leave my hands and look at my feet.